Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. When you are stuck at home for many weeks, chances are that, like me, you have downloaded one or more gaming apps on your phone or even purchased a game console for your living room. Games are hot. But games are also great sources of data collection from all corners of the world and all levels of society. What kind of data are collected? How are they used? Is it all transparent? And of course, how do we tell the children? And even more importantly, how do we protect the children? That and more in today's podcast. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal. And welcome to Serious Privacy. This episode I'm very excited about, which my listeners know I'm excited about every single episode we do because I'm a privacy geek. (laughs) But I am bringing two very special guests today to talk about a very, very hot topic. So we have Ben Siegel with Privacy Ref here in the United States. And we have Lena. I'm going to brutalize this. Kusiemi. Kusiemi. Very good. Okay, beautiful, of Legal Oi, and in her past, she has been with a gaming company, and she has a lot of experience with this. So both of them are highly eminent professionals, very well known in the privacy world, excellent reputations. I just wanted to get the good bio stuff out of the way, because here's the here's the good part. Here's your unexpected personal question. Lena, we're going to come to you first. If you could add one hour to your day, what would you do with it? Go, go dancing. <laughs> Good answer. Love it. Love it. Ben, what about you? Well, that's some, that's good exercise. I'd actually, uh, I have it behind me in this, uh, what looks like a briefcase. It's actually a wooden case. That's my painting. Uh, I paint miniatures to play Dungeons and Dragons with. Uh, so I've got all my paint and my brushes back there. And I showed Paul earlier, I'm painting some skeletons with my son currently, so. That is fantastic. And I think you and I spoke about this before because my brother paints miniatures as well. That's cool. Paul, what about you? What would you do? Are you going go-go dancing with Lena? Uh, No, I I don't think dancing is a good idea for me. But We talked um, about this last week, Paul. I know, I know. And I'm still not not good at dancing. I haven't haven't learned in this week. Maybe I split the time in two or do, do something every other day. But there is a stack of books that is about the size of my house that I should still read. Um, So that should be part of it. Um, And I'd love to spend more time on cooking. I love it. I have no idea what I would do with an extra hour. I'd probably merely do the same things I'm doing now. Work, work, work. I just have one more hour in the day. Yeah, kind of stinks. Maybe, maybe I would work on my PhD dissertation that if I don't get it done this year, I think they're kicking me out. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's about GDPR in U.S. public university, so I need to get my butt in gear. Okay, beautiful. With that, Paul, I am going to turn it over to you if you would like to kick us off with the first question. Sure. Well, let's let's start on the legal side um, because I'm I'm curious with all the new legislation that we've seen lately. Of course, GDPR and CCPA coming into force, COPPA in the United States not so new anymore. But with all the legal changes, how does the gaming industry keep up? Um, and maybe, Lena, this is this is a good question to start you off since you've dealt with all of this uh, throughout your career, uh, also on a daily basis. So yes, hi, here's Lena. Um, yes, I've been working with few game companies, but then also in Finland and in Europe, we have really active gaming association for the game developers. So we try to share this pain and it has been kind of ongoing for the last 20 years. The challenges are being there that because game is kind of uh, everything you have under the sun uh, rolled into one ball, it it's kind of has all the features that the movie has, but it also has that interactive elements into it. And this means that for the game companies, it's always been kind of uphill struggle to keep up with very fragmented legislation, not just uh, between the countries, but sometimes even inside the country, because you have a bit different rules what comes to the content as such. And then for this interactive uh, like features such as chat, for example, and all that. So what the game companies do then, that of course, you kind of start with your home turf. You can't really reason that you would not be compliant with the uh, applicable laws in the country where you have headquarters. So that's your starting point. And then many of them have the um, like uh, tactics that when you go to the key market, so then, of course, you are checking the mandatory ones because those are something that then you need to deal with. If it's not mandatory, then you take a very brutal approach that it may be that then it's kind of nice to have. But if you, you need to go to the underlying design and functionalities, it's also the price issue. So in short, it's really, really challenging, but you still need to comply because nowadays your platforms where you're actually distributing the game are pushing those responsibilities to you. Basically, you cannot submit into the distribution model before you sign up and say that you basically take all the liabilities that all every single feature in your game is compliant. So um, big companies, of course, are in the better position. If you think about the very large ones, something like Blizzard Activision or uh, such even they have a quite modest legal departments compared to some like other technology groups. Once when you go to European turf, specifically Scandinavia, we always be skimpy with lawyers. So you may not have more than two, four people actually responsible for the entire global setup. Because the games are cross-border by nature. Once you submit it, you typically never leave any area out. You can kind of cross those when you're submitting your game to the platform. The territories, your you sell choices worldwide. So you do what you can. You try to lean on the outside help. And of course, these associations do help that you may have a chance to actually talk with the local authorities. Ben, anything yeah. to add to this? Yeah, I, well, first, uh, that's a great answer that Lena provided. Uh, I would also add that what you're finding nowadays is even games that are traditionally, uh, talking about video games specifically, Games that are traditionally very single player, uh, games of this nature, you're still actually having a large online 
community and a large online presence. So uh, as Lena was mentioning, the distribution model where companies are taking responsibility, uh, oftentimes this distribution model, uh, systems like Steam, uh, the EA Play Store, these different systems, um, you are now interacting with your customers in a new way, possibly collecting more data that is outside the game. Uh, and that means that there's more responsibility with regards to privacy law. Um, I actually spoke to someone from Activision Blizzard at uh, the PSR conference last year in Las Vegas, and they mentioned, for example, that all data, including like what character in World of Warcraft, what sword your guy is using or what spells he uses is personal information or, or what that character is. And I think that's great, right? They're considering all this information personal. It relates to someone. Uh, but it's, it's something that you never would have had to consider, you know, 10 or, or about, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, back when online was basically, well, it's your username and that's it. Like it does nothing else matters. So what about transparency? Paul probably knows what I'm going to ask. <laughs> Are Fortnite dances personal information? Uh, I would say no, except for the Carlton, because that is related specifically to Carlton. <laughs> Even though I know the court case shot that down, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, this is well, a nice link back to our previous episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to um, bring up Fortnite dances for, I don't know, the next six or seven podcasts. Yeah, Oddly enough, I do not play Fortnite, or I really don't play a lot of that stuff. Uh, but I, I'm, I keep up with the, uh, with the memes, as it were. Uh, with regards to transparency, though, as you mentioned, Paul, I think there's a lot of uh, companies need to be more uh, transparent with regards to what data they collect. But the issue is uh, two-sided. Obviously, companies need to tell people what they're doing, what data they're using, how they're using it. Uh, but people actually have to read the privacy notice. Uh, a great example of this uh, outside of just video games is uh, sort of the mobile apps, things like alternate re or augmented reality. So Pokemon Go came out a couple of years ago, about five years ago. Um, no one reads privacy notices, right? It's very few people. Maybe 20% of people actually read the notice. Um, and I take some time usually to go on Reddit and look at what people say about things on like the uh, legal advice column. Uh, but I was playing Pokemon Go and someone was there complaining that their privacy notice says, they use all your data, they sell it. They, and I explained to them that, well, yeah, they sell it on the definition to CCPA, which is just that they provide the data to someone else for any kind of consideration, monetary or otherwise. And that the notice was pretty bog standard for what it says in, a, in, in the industry, right? Oh, we share your data with these third parties for processing. We may track these things. If you don't want us to track them, you have to let us know or you can't use the app. It's nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that would shock you. So people, people need to read the notice and understand it. So there's a level of education and awareness. And then companies need to also provide that information in a clear, understandable manner. Yeah, but what about kids? And I don't mean the really, really young kids, although we can talk about those as well. But even just teenagers, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, heck, let's go to young college, the 21-year-olds, yep. they don't understand what they're reading. And if even when companies go to the extent of making sure they're, it's, it's in user-friendly language, people should really aim for an eighth grade reading level mm -hmm. at minimum, maybe go down to fifth grade if English is a second language, kind of like Again, I'm from Mississippi. You might need to go down to a fifth grade reading level. But even if they can understand the words, they don't understand the import. How do you approach that? Or how should a company approach that? Lena? Well, yes, that has always been kind of uphill struggle, even though 
I have to say here that we had done a few studies in Nordics uh, for teenagers, etc. And actually, the outcome was that parents do not understand. What the, <laughs> I mean, teenagers were saying that the parents are super embarrassing. They don't know how to use social media and they are like embarrassment for the whole family. <laughs> and uh, that may be true. Uh, they said, that, actually, if you think about the like uh, vocabulary around technology thing, um, you could argue that sometimes maybe the teenagers are more savvy than the parents to understand what is actually happening there in the background. But of course, you can't rely on that. So that information is really, really difficult. And um, uh, in Europe, there has been some cooperation between like UNICEF and Save the Children uh, with the local units, also trying to kind of understand that what would be the level of communication that it would be kind of understandable in both ends. Well, as a lawyer, you know that it's always the challenge. I mean, people just keep using language in the different way, and they assume mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, we love to get the support for our pre-existing ideas when we are reading. So, oh, yeah, that's that, or no, it's not that. If something really classes with our pre-understanding, it's really challenging, specifically on the mobile. You have a very small screen to give that information and actually get that attention. So here, of course, I mean, in the Europe, if you think about the GDPR, the whole idea was that I don't have to read the notice because there's a minimum standard anyway. So I can kind of rely on that. But as for the kids, uh, there have been a lot of uh, tools. One thing was my pet peeve is all the information available for parents that they don't read. There are so many tools and uh, ways and tip corners and you name it with the what we call teleoperators like carriers websites who actually have a large distribution platform for any kind of content and games and family entertainment uh, the devices have really sophisticated tools how you can segregate different kind of apps from each other how parents could pre-check because that's a problem. I mean, you give that smartphone into the hands of the kid and you think that, oh, fantastic, now they are not going to bother me for <laughs> next few hours. And the problem is that it's, it's similar. I use always, Paul knows that I'm very uh, infamous for really, really bad analogs. And I used to say that I think it's like traffic. If you think how regulated traffic is, we have zebra crossings, we have uh, traffic lights, we have fines, we have police patrolling there. Nobody in their right mind would put five years out and say, see you at the shopping mall. I think that they could make it, even though it's regulated. So in the end, I think, now I can say it. I couldn't say it when I was uh, working for game companies because I can't blame the customers. But now I can say, hey, parents, you need to uh, teach your kids how to use it. Just like going out the traffic. Go uh, together with your kid. Open that device together. See what are the settings supervise a bit what's happening there you will learn your kid will learn and hopefully you will have an atmosphere where it's okay to flag when you see something nasty so ben is that what you are doing with your kid when you're gaming you together? better believe it uh, so <laughs> i i'm a an interesting an interesting position as a as a millennial so uh born in the late 80s i grew up obviously with the old nintendo oh my um, god my and- kids are younger than you yeah. Game Boy. <laughs> so the the original Great Brick, Brick Game Boy, yeah, stuff like that. And a lot of those games, parents just assumed like, eh, it's for kids. It's fine, right? It's, you know, Legend of Zelda, Mario, there's no violence. Um, 
But obviously, as we've gotten, you know, games have developed and they've gotten better, there's been more violence. So even before we get to privacy, um, I, I used to work at like a, a game retailer in college and p- kids would just come in and be like, yeah, mom, I want this game. And the parent would just throw it up on the table and I'd be like, so this game's rated M for mature for sexual content, graphic violence, drug references. And the parent's like, no, you're not getting this. How, like, and they're like, well, my friend plays this. Well, I'm not your friend's mom. Right. Um, I've heard I think, that. So for, for kids, I think the issue isn't first to Lena's point. Yes. Parents need to be involved with what their kids are playing. So like with my son, I mentioned, right. We play like Minecraft dungeons together. I know what we're doing. We play it offline. We're not doing anything online. Um, it, it, I'm not worried about his data being used, but it, just in general, I know what games he is playing and I don't let him play violent stuff. Right. I think the violent, most violent game he plays is like Minecraft. And even there, I'm just like, I turn off all the monsters. So he's just building stuff. Great. Um, for teenagers, though, for young adults, I just don't think they care, right? It's, it's, you get to the point where it's, well, I want to play Call of Duty, right? I want to play Battlefield Warzone. I want to play whatever. Um, and it pops up the EULA, the terms of service, the privacy notice, and they just click, yep, agree, 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 scroll the bottom, click, agree. yeah, I don't want to read this, whatever, because they just want to get, I just, just want to play. play. They don't care, right? They just mm-hmm. want to play Fortnite. So they're going to play Fortnite um, they because they don't care dance. about the Yes, correct. They don't. They don't want to waste. Yeah, we we used to say in the game industry that the best way to market any game for preteens is to put the age limit to sixteen, <laughs> because I mean that's when you really want to do it. Because hey, nobody wants to be a lame and and play like games. That okay, this is recommended for ten years old. Say hey, I'm in when you're ten. No, you want right. to play what the bigger boys right. and girls are playing. So that's really the attractive thing. So that's like a double-edged sword with any kind of age. Absolutely. And, and disclaimer that I have not provided. I don't game. That's I'm, fine. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I might. You never have. I, might I can't disagree. say never. I tried it. Um, I'm from the age of when um, Atari came out and you could play Centipede. The 26 or the 5200? Mm-hmm. This is the important question. Kelly. Oh, the, the early version. <laughs> the I never okay. memorized the Pac-Man game. Let, let's mean? just be honest. I am not a gamer. My husband is, <laughs> and most of my friends are because they're all geeks. So last week, I actually had to look up what the heck a Fortnite dance was. And you're throwing out names of games here that some of them I've heard of, uh, Minecraft I've heard of, but I can't tell you what kind of game it is. Uh, so if, and Lena, you said this, the parents don't care or they don't know. What do you recommend? Uh, like I said, my kids are in their late 20s. What do you recommend for a parent who doesn't game, who has no clue what any of these things do? Like I said, this is a great opportunity like um, to get to know that world of games with your kids because they are like so many more than like your shooting and strategic games. They are like philosophical games. They are things where you're floating above the meadows with the lovely music and collecting flowers or butterflies. Uh, I mean, there's just, I think, um, now I'm not sure about the figure, but I think... Uh, on average, every single day, there are about 200 new games coming oh, to wow. the platforms. So there's wow. like, I mean, you have the puzzle, you have the tic-tac-toes, and you have the Scrabble kind of word games, and you have this and that, things where you have to find something in the room, I mean, as quickly as possible to find the socks and the uh, briefcase, whatever. So, I mean, there's a vast variety, and I think it would also open for the kids if you would go and explore it yourself. The problem is where you find it. 
But I have to say that I've been a horrible mother as well. I used to work for Remedy when the Max Payne was uh, uh, launched, 2001. And of course, I got the special DVD package to home. And uh, then my daughters were very young because they were born in early 90s. And of course, I had been involved to a certain extent because I just arrived to the company when it was in, in a final stretch. But I didn't know how damn violent it was. And then my 11-year-old older girl comes to the kids and says, oh, mother, I need something to drink. I'm all exhausted because I've been shooting rats with shotgun in New York Metro for hours. And I'm going, what the heck is going there? Shame on me. I wasn't there next to her. I said, hey, Fantastics is playing something and I'm off yeah. the hook for a few hours. So um, my recommendation is that have an open mind. Don't think that everything is just like World War II or some like... Uh, really extremely uh, violent uh, rip-off game, go and find, there may be something that you actually find amusing, something that can be even, you might discover uh, literally in your yeah. world. Let, let your kids play Minecraft. Like, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't know uh, if I necessarily agree with Lena's <laughs> earlier point that, right, that kids want to play the, the stuff for older kids, like it's, it's more violent. That might be true. Um, I might also just be a giant nerd and I like playing single player RPGs, stuff like Final Fantasy or very Dungeons and Dragons kind of stuff. Okay, um, hold on. RPGs, role playing, role playing game? game. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's based, basically based off Dungeons and Dragons, which is all based off of Tolkien fantasy and things like that. Which has been uh, around so for a long time. For a very long time, yes. Uh, so essentially, uh, with regards to what you're picking for your kids, it's definitely a good idea to be involved. I know for a fact that most of the games I played growing up were more like sports games. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with playing Madden or like NBA Jam on the Sega Genesis. Um, nowadays, there's a lot more stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that is really good uh, that's a bit more uh, thought-provoking. Uh, I know Minecraft, like I keep mentioning it, um, but it is kind of fun to just go around and explore and build stuff and, you know, let your, you know your kid's not going to do anything crazy. Um, and that's good. And also it's offline. Uh, once you get online is when you really get into the higher risk because now you're talking about the unknown interaction with random people on the internet and the internet has this great tendency to kind of ruin everything, uh, once it touches it. And thank you so much for segueing into that nicely, because otherwise I was just going to interrupt and go there. So there is a lot of information out there and there's starting to become a lot more awareness of the risk to children through online gaming, through the chats, and through pedophiles grooming them. And this isn't a paranoia thing that parents come up with. It actually happens. And Mm -hmm. so there was an article that uh, I had found, and this is from, and we'll put a link to the, the article below. But in here, it Let's see, the first threat, okay, there's been some success in catching perpetrators. Uh, There was a guy who was sentenced to prison for introducing or coercing an 11-year-old girl into producing child pornography after meeting her through an online game. Um, Another one who solicited explicit imagery from three boys because he posed as a teenager in Minecraft um, and League of Legends. Not that I'm trying to say the games are at fault here, but these are what pedophiles do. They go online, they blackmail, they solicit these types of images, and the kids are abused, and they don't understand that they're being abused, and they don't know who to tell. And some of this can also cross over to um, 
revenge pornography, things along this line. Uh, it's all a huge issue. So the Justice Department here in the U.S. identified sextortion as by far the most significantly growing threat to children. Thoughts? Well, I can say that I have, yes. Uh, for example, it kind of opened my eyes when I was in the conference uh, maybe four or five years ago. And we have the Interpol and Europol guys who are actually on daily basis uh, doing work with child molesters. And, and it is a very gruesome world. The challenge here is that the, from the game developer's perspective, having like chat and interaction is a fantastic feature because now you can kind of right. create groups and you can make strategy and you can chat with people. I mean, from the like positive side, when you are looking the world kind of maybe little through rose-colored glasses, it looks fantastic. The problem is that once when you have access, everybody has an access. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I always say that that game chat, it's just like any, like our real world outside, except that you are now in the totally dark room. So I can't see who's talking to me. And even that voice is distorted. So I can't. Uh, have any clue with whom I'm talking with. You may have a wrong name. You may may not be a male or female. I don't know your age. And that's what makes it very vulnerable place because we have an illusion that we are in somehow in isolation and a safe place because I may be sitting in my home, in my own room, but still I'm out there with all these adults. The monitoring, the challenge is, uh, first of all, is the practicality. And the second is the cost. If you have a small game company and now you want to have this lovely new game and first thing nowadays, because the gamers want to have a chat there, I want to interact with other gamers. Now the problem is here that how am I going to supervise those chats? If you have a software, for example, that very, like in the rudimental way, tries to identify certain listed words, people are super innovative so they can get around those. And still, I remember as for example, uh, Rovio was going to have a cute feature. That's what the guys told me. I mean, they never see the evil in this world, those lovely game developers. Then comes the lawyer and spoils everything. <laughs> Basically, the idea was that they were the super cute birds and they wanted to give a possibility for people to make a dialogue for them. And you would write the words, they would actually speak them and you would create your own mini plays there. This sounds lovely. I was then, my first question was, that, okay, what about the swear words? Yeah, we have a list of those. I said, in how many languages? Uh, they had like eight, what was quite a lot, but that's not enough. Next was here that I said, that okay, give it to me. And because I have a very dirty imagination, it took me maybe uh, two minutes to make absolutely horrendous discussion between those birds without using any of the words wow. on the list. Because it's so much wow. also about the context, so that's not sufficient. And now you need maybe human eyes. So some games you are having flagging system that if I feel uncomfortable, but that is now relying on the reactions of that gamer. And if you are young and you don't want to appear as uh, too shy or something, that's a problem. You go along before you flag something that now I'm feeling super uncomfortable. And having those human eyes 24-7 is a super high cost. Mm -hmm. So this is a really, really a big challenge. How to stop that? Because game companies really want to uproot those people away from there because it's bad for everything because they want to have a nice entertainment, nice interactivity. And how are you going to stop those people coming in and pretending to be something else that they are? It's a big challenge. 
even even beyond what Lena said, so the example with uh, Minecraft in that article, so that there's a real challenge because uh, Microsoft and Mojang, who own Minecraft, they're just selling you a license to play Minecraft, and online Minecraft doesn't run on some sort of official server from Microsoft, as far as I know. Um, it's run on servers hosted by people that just happen to want to host a server. Um, now there are terms of service that they have listed. Uh, good examples like you can't use your, you can't sell in-game items on your server for real-world money. Um, you basically you can't make money off of reselling the game itself or the content in the game because that's Microsoft's, you know, that's what they want to do. Um, so you, Microsoft can't be held responsible for someone who runs a server and then uses that server to prey on children. Um, and that's that's the real difficulty is reining that in. Uh, another example, I think, from that same article was there's a chat application called Discord. I use it myself for a number of different reasons to play games with my friends, to uh, just to chat with people um, or chat with communities that are uh, specific to a particular game. Uh, most games these days will have a Discord channel that's just made by fans and it'll run, uh, but people will post whatever they want. And there is, as uh, Lena mentioned, a cost to moderation. Um, and it gets very, very difficult. It gets very, very costly. If you want to have 24-7 people moderating every single message, every single chat that gets put on there, uh, it, it's difficult to do on such a massive scale. Uh, and I'd mentioned in addition to that, uh, I'd actually done some work this past year for a dating company. They have an online application. And they had a pretty good approach, which was that uh, they detect a lot of that language, a lot of those uh, potential images using um, uh, AI or uh, machine learning to try and identify potentially uh, malicious or, or harmful content, uh, and it automatically escalates it to be reviewed, and they've outsourced that to another company. That basically these people are trained to review the content, understand the context. That uh, sounds like a good approach. And it, it is a pretty good approach. Obviously, things get through the cracks. Uh, things you know can be false positives or false negatives, um, but it's a real challenge. Uh, and for game companies, it's sort of something that comes up second, unfortunately, right? It's they want to make money, and sometimes they want to make a good game too, but they want to make money first. Uh, and the right. bottom line tends to become the number one thing, whereas the toxicity of a community or the way people act is a, a secondary concern. Well, and with 200 new games appearing every single day, or, or numbers in, in, in that region, um, it'll, it is also almost impossible to, to keep that up on an ongoing basis. That would involve so many millions of people just for the moderation. Um, that, is, that is almost impossible. I mean, think of it this way. If, you, if you're an independent developer, a studio of maybe one or two people, and you decide to run a Discord server or you make a new game and suddenly your game is, has a very minor online component and it's being used to prey on children or people who play your game, you're a two-person company. How are you going to possibly scale up to, to deal with that potential issue? And it can be a real challenge. And you're already talking about you know, t tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars right away. Which a lot of these game creators don't have. Right. These smaller companies, larger companies, obviously, are, mm. are more apt to deal with this and more able to deal with this. Yeah. What would be a way out? Would it be would it be um, saying to kids under a certain age, you can only play games that are not connected to the Internet? Would that would that even work in today's day well, and age? I mean, I so not to point fingers, but ask the pornography industry, right? There's all these websites that say, mm -hmm. hey, are you 18? And every 14-year-old boy I know has always been like, you better believe I'm 18. Right. 
some of them were born in 1906 because that's just the lowest number that defaults to and they scroll all the way to the bottom of it or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I'm 114 years old and I want to go to this porn website. And they go, all right, well, you're, you're, you lived through two world wars. So sure, it's all At you. 114, you might deserve to. I mean, I guess uh, it's it's difficult to <laughs> simply say, well, if you're 13, you can't play games online uh, because what if they live with an older brother, mm-hmm. right? Oh, your older brother's 18. Oh, yeah, I'm on my older brother's account. I'm allowed to play older games, uh, you know, games online now. And it's it's a unfortunately, it's it's uh, sort of the cookie jar thing, right? Like you can put the cookie jar there, you can put the rules in place, but your people are still going to be like, well, I want a cookie, so I'm going to sneak in and grab one when I'm not supposed to. And then, Lena, you were about to say something about the AI, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that that uh, looks promising, let's put it that way, that you could have that kind of a machine learning algorithm that could, like, in a new way combine, because now it's been, like, a single words or something, what is not efficient enough. Uh, I can see, but I don't think, well, yet, let's see where we are in 10 years, that it would totally... Uh, like uh, be at the same level as somebody being there with you. But um, what some like game companies, because this is actually, some of them are taking this very seriously because it's uh, that if you have that kind of scandal, it may mean, and it has meant that you really lose gamers and, Mm -hmm. and the parents get very angry and you don't want to end up in the headlines that you are totally like negligence that you don't do anything. What some have done, but this doesn't work. It depends what kind of game is it, what makes sense. But if you're having like smaller groups like tribes or something, there typically this isn't that much dilemma because, I mean, when you are talking with one-to-one, there's always that personal threshold if I'm going to complain or not. But when you have a larger group and somebody starts behaving creepily, it's much more uh, probable that one of them will flag that. And you know that they are monitoring something that you can say there's somebody getting really creepy. And then they can go back and check that person's account and how they've been behaving. And they probably will ban mm-hmm. them uh, either for short period or for good if it's a creepy person. So they say that that seems to be working. Uh, but if you allow one-to-one chat, that's always a huge risk. So one simple rule may be don't allow one-to-one chats. Yeah, but like I said, then there may be games that that doesn't really work if the whole idea is there that let's like work in couples or that you have that interaction. Now, shame on me. I haven't been uh, playing myself uh, World of Warcraft. That was a huge hit in my home. Um, uh, That whether it's always, I think there's a possibility to have one-to-one. That has one of the like really massively popular game. And there it would be a dilemma that I can't talk between you because now I'm planning with you to raid, let's say, Paul's home. So I don't want him to be involved because it's going to be a surprise attack. Mm-hmm. So this means that sometimes it just doesn't make sense to have that kind of limitation. Yeah. Uh, with the World of Warcraft example, it's really good. So the, the game itself obviously has a number of chat channels. I, I used to play myself, Lena, so I totally know where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I got. But a lot he of has work to done. explain it to me. I got a lot of work done in college. I promise. Um, so, basically, there's the normal chat channels that are open where you can you character can type. So it's called say, which is basically in the, the local area around your character in the world. People can see what you're saying. Um, but there's channels for the different zone your character's in. So if they're in a particular area of the game, they can hear everyone that's chatting there. Um, if they're in a major city in the game, they can talk to that. There's a trade channel where people are trading things. 
all of that. Then there's your guild. Your guild has a guild chat. If you're in a party with different people, there's a party chat. And then there's whispers, which are one-to-one, right? Only you can see them. Um, now, luckily, I think Warcraft actually had a lot of really good functionality where you could block it. There were controls for children where you could stop people from talking to them um, if you didn't want them to, which is, is great. You can just close out all the voice channels if you don't want them talking to people. Uh, but that said, the, the issue with sort of getting rid of one-to-one chat is that there's almost always a way. If, if gamers are one thing, it is they are uh, very, very resourceful and they will find a way around anything you give mm-hmm. them. That, that, is their, that is the thing that defines them. If you say, well, we're banning one-to-one chats, they will find a way to like, include semaphore or to use smoke signals. They will find a way to, to talk to each other one-to-one. They the easiest do. way to get people to create something is to tell them they can't do it. Correct. I th- and I think that that's for all communications. Uh, it, that's probably true. I, I recall watching a Norwegian TV show called Occupied. It's uh, uh, a thriller series um, uh, about a fictitious future Norway occupied by Russia um, and uh, the resistance movement in Norway to reinstall the prime minister. Um, and part of um, uh, of of that series is actually the politicians and the resistance communicating with each other through a game like World of Warcraft, uh, the audio functionality, to be able to um, to to discuss drop-offs of, uh, of of materials and and of weapons and and things like that. So it also in fiction, it is already clear that um, the gaming uh, the the, the, the the non-official use of games um, um, has made its way. But if I want to go back to something we were talking about, the AI for chats and identifying. If they use that tool, then wouldn't they need to disclaim in their privacy notice? Isn't that kind of creating a profile of a person if they're trying uh, to identify suspicious or questionable actions by a particular gamer? Well, so I would look at GDPR as the best example of this. So first thing that comes to mind is, and this this is my nerdy part coming out. So this is definitely Article 22, right? This is the automatic processing of someone's information. Anytime you do that, escalation to human review is important. Right. Um, if you set up a keyword that mm-hmm. if someone uses a particular language, that that's flagged, you want someone to review it to make sure that it requires the appropriate action. For building a profile, I don't necessarily think it is building a profile of a person, but you're looking at a single action and you're saying, uh, for example, they use the word kill. So the the program, because if they're saying, oh, go kill those monsters over there, obviously that's fine context. If they type, I'm going to kill you, you know, there's context there that needs to be reviewed. Maybe they were having an argument or they were joking and you know, there's all these things that need to be looked at from a human perspective to understand why did the person say that. If they've determined that this is like a serious threat against this person's safety, now what they're doing is it's not, again, it's not profile. They've said at this single point, we've determined you've done something that's against our terms of service or against the rules. And so we're going to take action, whether that's alerting the authorities, banning their account, that's up to them. And there's a number of different steps to take. Um, And just to get the one more article in there, right, we can look at Article 6. It definitely falls under legitimate interest because you're looking out for the safety of an individual. You're trying to prevent them from suffering from harm. And clearly, there's a balance of interest with regards to processing done by the company and the information coming from that data subject. So there's there's a lot there, but I don't know about profile, but it definitely strikes me as automated processing. 
Yes, and I would say that you can mitigate a lot. I mean, for example, in uh, what you just said, if you can see that somebody says, I'm going to kill the monster, monster, don't save that data. You could be deleting as you go. I mean, then you wouldn't be like uh, collecting and storing that. If somebody keeps saying that they are going to kill everybody, I mean, then you have also kind of reason to maybe store that, but then you would be actually collecting and storing much less data and only that that you can claim as relevant and keep like reviewing that on a regular basis. So then you would have a good reasoning that you do what you see that you need to, but you do not excessively start collecting or making profiles on games just for the fun of it. Data minimization, for sure. Agree on that one. So maybe to to wrap up, let's talk money a bit because gaming is big business. Um, a lot of these games are either uh, already initial purchase or there are in-app purchases uh, that uh, or subscription models that you then forget to uh, to, You're to so unsubscribe from. Um, so you keep paying. <laughs> well, you know I've, this is all from <laughs> own experience. Um, I I do game occasionally when I have to. I have my money. own strong feelings um, about microtransactions don't worry paul <laughs> so yeah that's that's the microtransactions but then at the same time if you if you look at these uh if these games and there is a study from fordham university from uh, a while back that actually spells it out um they found that all games not only collect the, the 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 data that you would expect but also location data and they contain dozens and dozens of trackers for marketing that are shared with affiliates with advertising platforms and and more um, why would that even be necessary? Apart, of course, from making even more money. But if you are already paying for the game and have micro payments, why then also all the tracking? Uh, I, I mean, companies want to make money. Uh, there's, there's, I, I don't want to call it any particular organization, but there are definitely instances uh, lately uh, where organizations take actions that strike you as just. Very strange. Um, I guess there's one I can call out, which was EA when they released Battlefront 2. Star Wars Battlefront 2 is this big deal, huge licensed Star Wars game. Everyone was very excited for it. Uh, the original Star Wars Battlefront was like really well received. Um, and basically, they came out with everyone's favorite loot crates, which is, uh, for those who don't know, essentially is in-game. You get randomized little crates with you know, upgrades for your characters or different characters or different items. Um, but it's all randomized. Now, of course you unlock these really, really slowly through playing the game, or you can give them 50 bucks and they'll give you a whole bunch of loot crates. Um, and people were upset about that. But then the straw that broke the camel's back was that they locked Darth Vader, who is like, if again, if you're a Star Wars person... You I know, do know who like, Darth Vader is. I'm so glad I don't have to explain who Darth Vader is. <laughs> I actually is. cosplay um, Padme, so mm-hmm. okay. Ooh. I mean, I'll, we'll get to that later. Okay, no, sir, loot yeah, crates. Yeah. Let's so keep it at that. Basically, yeah. um, with with that, the co- it was just corporate greed, right? Like, you can play this game for something like, I think someone determined that if you played the game for 40 hours straight, you could unlock Darth Vader. Uh, it would take you 40 hours of time, which is a, a lot to unlock a single character. Right. But then you have to go through and unlock Luke Skywalker, unlock, you know, like Darth Maul, unlock all the characters you want to do. It's, you know, companies are incentivized to make money. Um so they're going to say, well, listen, you can give us four bucks right now and you can unlock Darth Vader and get the special uh. like uh, super cool Darth Vader skin where he's, he's white instead of black mm. or uh, he's pink even, which, it, you know, they'll do whatever you want. For if money. they can make money, they'll do it. 
Um, this, of course, all led to the most downvoted Reddit post in the history of, of Reddit. I think it got like 700,000 downvotes um, because they told, wow. they told gamers that they wanted them to have a quote-unquote sense of pride and accomplishment uh, playing the game for 40 hours to unlock Darth Vader when most people just, they just want to play Darth Vader, right? Um, so with regards to money, these companies, they're tracking you, they're selling your data because they want money. And I'm not going to blame them. It's just some of them do it a little bit more overtly than others. Yeah, but then there are like a lot of, I would say, small game companies honestly do not understand what's happening when they sign up to some of these, like uh, I would call them middlemen, not to point anything else here. I mean, you think you need them for certain functionalities. And unless you really start asking nasty questions, they are not going to tell you what actually does happen when you connect uh, that game to those, uh, like uh, their mm-hmm. APIs. And there might be some like really nasty surprises there uh, because some companies thought that, well, I'm not going to do, uh, let's say, behavioral uh, advertising, but it's a bit uphill work here, by the way. Uh, what is I find bit, uh, how would I say, funny or ironic is that I used to be really, really involved with COPPA uh, in USA. And, and then um, uh, when when it came to 2013, so I remember being in myself uh, in telcos all June, trying to go through the advertising networks and find out who we can continue cooperation with and who we need to just say that hello, goodbye. This was it. We just can't work with you because your functionalities will mean that we will be breach of COP and we will end up uh, having a nice little discussion with the Federal Trade Commission. And to my surprise, very many US-based companies had parallel offerings because they knew they had so large custom base in USA. So they said, okay, we hear you. We had had like few other companies. So if you can do this, here's the uh, plan B. So we will just have this that you are under COPPA and then certain functionalities are turned off. Fantastic. Now comes uh, GDPR because in the Europe, people were still living like no tomorrow because there was no enforcement, even though the rules were roughly the same. Now, to my surprise, I have a few European companies and I have the discussion with exactly the same gang who now say this can't be done. And I said, sorry, guys, I had the discussion with you 2013. It was doable. So don't tell me now you can't do it. And that has always been my like message uh, for the USA, that if you don't understand GDPR, think about COPPA. And in Europe, we are all <laughs> under 13. We just don't have the <laughs> same rules, just not for anyone. But uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, some companies uh, do it willingly, some unwillingly. Some don't even know what the heck is happening behind those closed doors. Because they just, you need to get everything in place. They have been working in some game companies before. Now they have a startup. They just remember on the back of their head, oh, this is all you needed in order to launch that game. And nobody goes through those uh, old questions that, is this really strictly necessary? Does the game function without this? It may or may not. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, both. I have a feeling that we could continue these conversations for many more hours, but I do have to go back to my game not to lose my points. Um, <laughs> without without kidding, um, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. Um, and this concludes another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. 
Should you have any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at, at @podcastprivacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as EuropolB. Thank you again for listening to Serious Privacy and until our next episode. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>